uh, trying to keep the candle lit with regards to keeping CFS's mojo alive. Hello and welcome. I am Jody Rye and this is season one of our show, We Are BC Fed Leaders, where career journeys of amazing public servants in British Columbia and other regions are shared in the hopes of inspiring dialogue, generating ideas and enhancing learning. The focus of the BC Fed Leaders campaign launch is cultivating and sustaining a culture of continuous learning, applying systems thinking to how we do things, with the ultimate hope of creating a high-performing public service in BC. This is our last episode of 2019, and it was a thrill to hear from four members of Natural Resources Canada's Canadian Forestry Services, and how, through building relationships via trust, disrupting the system, and humility, they created the CFS Mojo, a vibe, if you will, that emanated from CFS and influenced all of NRCAN. Listening to two former CFS directors, George Broomer and Jeff Monroe, the current Director General of Pacific Forestry Centre, Judy Beck, and Marie-Anique Emio, the current Manager of Policy Experimentation, will have you feeling as though it's a family reunion where these impactful humans are reminiscing about a time when they felt engaged and connected with the people they worked with while doing important work which they were passionate about. I would like to thank my co-host Gilles Verret, who was kind enough to join us for this episode and enabled some of the conversation to be in French. Happy listening and happy learning. And keeping concepts like learning organization and feedback-rich cultures and um, systems thinking alive. And it's been a little bit of a battle and a journey in of itself because we've had so much turnover. It's time to refresh some of the fundamentals. But I've also been working with uh, Deputy Minister out West, uh, our uh, BC Federal Council lead in Dylan Jones, who's been really inspiring and very enabling from my perspective. Um, and and he's said, Judy, have your boots and try to do something, you know, uh, walk the ground and engage with folks in the region um, in British Columbia, Yukon, uh, and try to do whatever you want from a horizontal uh, initiative perspective. So we've started a campaign, it's called BC Fed Leaders, uh, and of course CFS is still part of that, um, but I've been driving it uh, from the West, and really we've launched a, a Twitter campaign, we brought Bob Charche out uh, and introduced him to uh, the Federal Family Out West earlier this year, uh, and um, we've also launched uh, both a podcast and a blog series, and really these are about... First of all, we're engaging today virtually, right? Which is uh, really kind of a new way of doing business. And the point for uh, me out west in particular was that I'm even isolated in Victoria and I'm not part of the hub that's in Vancouver for the federal family, nor am I part of the hub in the national capital region. But by using some of these alternative tools, uh, some of these virtual tools, I'm still able to engage. And so if I can engage this way, why can't I engage leaders at all levels across the federal family? And so this conversation, uh, we've been talking about CFS's mojo in this context. 
Um, and why is that important to an organization? Why is it important to your culture? Why is it important, or was it important to you as an individual? And so um, <clears throat> this is really about us creating a, a CFS uh, podcast around how did we find our mojo, where did it start, and in part, what do you need to do to maintain it? And so that's the conversation we wanted to have with you today because clearly you were both part of the founders uh, and enabling CFS's mojo, and so we really wanted uh, you to tell your story. Uh, surtout dans la langue de votre choix. Alors, on vous encourage de parler français aussi bien qu'en anglais, comme vous voulez. Um, on, on veut engager tout le monde. Alors, uh, uh, si on peut parler un peu de français, um, ça va bien. Alors, uh, c'est là où on, on, on va commencer. Et premièrement, je vais vous demander si vous avez des questions. Non, uh, c'est clair, je crois. C'est beau. D'accord. Alors, peut-être je vais commencer avec notre première question. Uh, et peut-être on va commencer avec Jeff. Um, Jeff, what is CFS's mojo? Well, that's a multifaceted question. And, and I guess I would, uh, uh, from my history within the organization, it is um, your new job, Nick. It's to disturb the system and be um, not only welcomed in disturbing the system, but more importantly, enabled in disturbing the system. And uh, I mean, we'll get into more of the specifics as we talk through this and some of the disturbances that George and I created in our respective uh, um, participation in the mojo. But it's, it's looking for new ways of doing things. It's being innovative to use current language. Uh, uh, but it isn't innovation as a program. It's, it's disturbing the system and looking for more interesting ways to do things, broadening the horizon, uh, enhancing the partnership relationships inside and outside the federal family, uh, uh, making it a, a, a very positive and exciting place to work. Um, and, and some of it is, even though we label it CFS's mojo, as we developed the community of practice uh, around learning organization, there was also a bit of a a club, uh, a, a cult maybe, uh, uh, of the practitioners who were trained who could say something to each other. Uh, uh, the nudge, nudge, wink, wink that went on between practitioners as they used lexicon and language that they had learned through that uh, uh, training program started to filter out into the rest of the organization. And, and that too was part of the mojo. Uh, something different, something exciting, something a little bit unique within the NRCAN family that started out being uh, somewhat unique to CFS. As we all know, it also percolated out through the walls as well and went to other parts of both this organization and others. But the mojo itself was, the, was, was all of that kind of uh, enabled behavior that was outside the norm. George, peut-être tu as des commentaires pour nous? Oui. Bon, dans ma situation, c'était un peu différent. J'étais rentré au SCF beaucoup plus tard que Jeff. Je suis rentré à, effectivement au CFS avec, à cause de Jeff. Euh, puis pour moi, le focus était surtout sur, euh, pas à l'interne, la famille fédérale, comme Judy, comme tu fais, mais, mais la famille industrielle, si je peux dire. Puis à l'époque, euh, avant de rentrer, j'étais avec euh, euh, l'industrie. Euh, 
puis Jeff va se, va se rappeler d'une rencontre on était, où on était, puis le, le sous-ministre adjoint de, de ce temps-là, c'était Brian Emmett. Uh, and we were in a, in a meeting together with, and I was there as part of the industrial representation, and Emmett was, of course, fearless in his own right, and Jeff talks about disturbing the system, and Emmett was determined to disturb not just the CFS, but, but the entire industry across Canada at the time. And that meeting, uh, and Jeff and I made co eye contact several times during the course of that meeting, uh, but in that meeting, basically, Brian set the wheels in motion to fundamentally change the relationship between the federal government and the Forest Service particularly, but I think the federal government was his target in general, uh, and the forest industry in Canada. And and so for, for me, coming into the CFS, it was less about... Um, other ministries, other departments, and more about the uh, the relationship with the industry, and that's really what I came in to to work on. Um, and so, so that I mean, I, I, Jeff, I'm sure you remember that meeting as well, and and I remember that as a as a turning point in in uh, in the relationship between the forest industry and the and the CFS. And for me personally, it was a, a turning point in the sense that. Okay, well, I, I want to be part of this, and how do I do that? Uh, George, it's Jody. What, when, when, when was this meeting? I'm just curious about the timing of this. It would have been 2004, 2005. Uh, okay. Maybe even, I'd say 2004, somewhere in there. Jeff? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but uh, uh, George and I started behaving differently even prior to that. Mm. Um, uh, I had had... Uh, a Bob Chartier experience when I was still with the Ontario oh, um, right. yeah. uh, Minister of Natural Resources. Um, post the mid-90s, what we called in the Federal Family Program Review, what we called in uh, the provincial world downsizing uh, or downloading, depending on what particular subject you were talking about. And uh, um, it was an interesting experience and it exposed me to uh, uh, Bob's sort of unique way uh, and some of the tools. So fast forward, I became the DG of the Great Lakes Forestry Center. And uh, uh, one of the first things I asked for was, well, where's the strategic plan for this place? And I got a whole bunch of people looking at the floor and, and you know, not wanting me to look me in the eye because there wasn't one big surprise. So I ran one of Bob's tools, uh, uh, the uh, Courtyard Cafe. And in that tool, if you remember, you have to have a waiter in each cafe who helps facilitate the conversation. So I thought it would be fun to have people who were not part of the lab, but were part of the community. And I had, well, Jim Farrell was there, although Jim was uh, a director, I guess, in those days at headquarters, uh, and various other people, including this guy from industry by the name of George Brunner. And uh, George came up and was one of the waiters in our, our cafe. So that was the first exposure that he and I had had to this uh, toolbox of other ideas. You remember me dressing you up in white shirt and, uh, and, and black bow tie, George? And, I do. I do. Yeah, that was uh, quite a unique experience. Yeah, that was quite a unique experience, I must say, for sure. You must but, yeah, have I'd forgotten about that. family was pretty funny, George. What's that? You must have thought, from an industry's perspective, you must have thought the federal family was quite unique. Well, I, yes, that that certainly that experience and the, and the and the amount of effort that went into planning that one day or two day event 
mm-hmm. uh, was was struck me as quite remarkable actually, and and mm-hmm. and it did I think. Um, I used to tease Jeff that the strategic plan that came out of it really, to be honest, didn't mean anything to me. But but the process and the and the conversations and the relationships that developed from it uh, lasted for a long time after. And that was the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the, the strategic plan was really just a reflection of what was going on. Uh, it had a bit of strategic thinking in it, but most of it was knitting together what was already going on. But George is right. It was the process and the relationships and the, and the, and the, the sort of the breaking of the normal system, the perturbation in the normal system, um, that was the enthusiasm behind it. So in many ways, for me, uh, uh, that was the beginnings of that new CFS mojo that went back that far. And so that would have been 02, something like that. Okay, and I love I love the example. I was curious about the timing, um, especially when you, you you folks started talking about disrupting the system. Um, as Jill and I were were, were chatting about uh, what's on trend, you know, and in 2019, innovation and be a disruptor and and all those things seem to come up. And so I was curious about in in your world, when was this coming up for you? And I, I love the example you provided in terms of behavioral change and a tangible product, but it was the mojo and the behavior and the lived experience that actually encapsulate product, which really didn't matter at the end of the day. I mean, oftentimes people that think about systems thinking will say we want the whole system in the room. And so how wonderful that, that you saw value in going to the community, having them involved, and then recognizing the, the strength of relationships. And, and oftentimes in leadership training or in, in different dialogues, everyone says that. At the end of the day, it's about relationships. And how beautiful in terms of the example that you provided. Thank you for that. And George may not know the, the corollary to that story. Maybe you do, George. I don't know. Um, but all of the waiters had felt magic markers, of course, making all kinds of notes on flip charts and responding to whatever their participants were telling them. Well, what they did not know was there were no green pens, none. And then all of the flip chart paper was posted on the walls in the big boardroom down in the basement, uh, the big meeting room, uh, A103, I think it is, down at the bottom of the main stairs. We put it up there for a week, and I told all the staff in the lab, you can go add anything you want. You go read it, and you didn't get to go to talk to that cafe. You can put something in there. The only color of pens in the room was green, and that was so I could tell what else got added. And it was interesting because it was very, very little. Lots of people in there, lunch, coffee break, when they wanted to take a break from whatever they were doing, they went and wandered through, and it was constant traffic, but very little added, which told me that the process was very successful in eliciting what people wanted to say. Marie-Annick, ton histoire? Ah, uh, ben moi, mon histoire a commencé à, en, en 2000, quand je me suis joint comme une, une graduée récente de la Faculté de foresterie euh, ici. Mais en fait, j'avais commencé avec un, un emploi d'été. Puis moi, j'ai eu la chance d'avoir un, un DG à l'époque qui était un, un, un disrupteur. Qui, qui, puis même à ce jour, il n'y a pas d'unanimité. <rire> moi, ça a été quelqu'un qui m'a, qui m'a montré qu'on pouvait avoir de l'espace dans notre milieu de travail. Euh, c'est c'est, c'est, c'est M. Jacques Carrette dont je parle. Puis quand je suis arrivée, on m'a mis sur, ben, Marianne, tu vas développer des PowerPoint templates. Puis j'étais comme, wow, I studied for that to make PowerPoint templates. And I was a little bit full of myself and thought that I could contribute more. So I, I remember one day, je suis rentrée dans son bureau, puis j'ai dit, OK, moi, je m'en vais. 
J'ai eu une offre de Domtar. Qu'est-ce que je fais ici? T'sais? Puis il m'a dit, Marianne, tu as deux choix. Soit tu vas changer le monde de l'extérieur ou tu vas le changer de l'intérieur. Puis il dit, moi, j'ai choisi de changer de l'intérieur parce que ça permet de comprendre le système puis de voir où sont les failles puis les opportunités. Fait il m'a convaincu par ça de, de rester. Puis il, il nous a mis sur une initiative trois jeunes filles, trois jeunes graduées, euh, Marilyn Chu, Christy Arsenault, qui est un directeur maintenant euh, au Centre de foresterie de, de l'Atlantique, puis moi, euh, sur ce projet fédéral-provincial de, de redéfinir le zonage forestier. Puis tout le monde nous disait, like, what? Like, Why, why, what, what credentials do they have? Why were they in charge of this? There's other people that have more knowledge, more experience, uh, visibility, and, and all of that, and authority. But he was convinced that he wanted a fresh look at things, and, and he was an enabler. For me, what both George and you, Jeff, talked about earlier, was that you behave as enablers. You didn't want to be the center. You didn't want to craft the, the, the strategic plan. George said, you didn't want to define what was the Centre Canadien sur la fibre de bois. Like you were touring, you were connecting with people, you were giving, creating the space, protecting the space for that to happen. Uh, and, and then people then started to trust you and see that, yeah, it was a real possibility. It was not just a, uh, an imagery. And, and, and for me, that was the biggest lesson that I've learned from my early days with that notion that, and, and when I was starting to work on ISA, we had the integrated systems approach where we were bringing senior scientists with, with senior leaders to, to look at how we were going to do our science and how we can foster science policy integration. Um, we, we had this part into our business case about a different role for managers, that you're not there to share your knowledge that you're there to enable people yeah. to then be the best that they can be. And, and Judy, you, you've done the same, and, and, and you've also been an enabler, and you continue to be an enabler, and the podcast is an example of that. But it's certainly something that I got from all three of you and also from my DG who hired me right out of school. So that has shaped me a, a lot. Peut-être, Judy, maintenant, tu peux partager ton, ton expérience, ton histoire à toi? Hmm. Um, my story is an interesting one in that uh, it starts with uh, one that I reflect on and I, I tell it more loudly than I would have otherwise, but uh, I joined the CFS, um, not necessarily to join the CFS, although I knew of the organization and, and uh, was clearly um, enamored with the organization from a science perspective. But it was also about the organization that I was leaving and the leadership that I was leaving at the time. And I wasn't happy where I was, which, which was what triggered um, me to look further afar. And so the real question for me is what's kept me working for CFS? I had been um, exposed to Bob Chartier and learning organization tools when I worked for the province, and I uh, really liked and believed in that space. Um, but when your organizations move through downsizing and right-sizing, um, they, they often lose sight of people in those processes. And, uh, and so um, I was looking for new opportunities. And, and now um, I taught, when, when folks ask me about applying for jobs, um, I remind them that the, the fit has to be really good both ways. And so don't just go through an interview thinking that, they're interviewing you. You need to think about you interviewing them 
from your perspective and whether or not the organization is the right fit, has the right value set, and is actually interested in creating a culture uh, that's empowered, that's enabled, that's creative, that's innovative. Because um, life's too short to be working in a place where you're not happy working. And so the things that make me stay are um, having those opportunities to uh, find new challenges, to work with uh, enabling others, to create um, that innovative space, uh, to use different tools to trigger the behavioral changes, and to know that there, the work there is never, ever done because we've clearly had huge turnover. Uh, you know, that's eight of nine director generals in the organization in the last year, year and a half, um, and 22 of 29 directors. So there is a really strong need to um, sort of breathe fresh and inspiring new life in that. And for me, the CFS mojo... Uh, those are words to be given, not taken. And you can lose those words as quickly as you gain them. And so yeah. it, it is about a vibe and a culture. And um, it's about creating a family, those relationships. So you're not just working for an organization. You're working with a family, if you like. Um, and uh, I think it means that we make things fun at work and we get things done. And we're proud of those things. Um, and so I, uh, I remember somebody remarking that when you open my door, you hear laughter outside in my DG's, DGO office, right? They're, everybody's giggling and having fun, but they are absolutely getting things done. Um, and, and I just love that environment, and it, it would be time to go if that wasn't what was happening in the organization. So for me, I think that's the, that's the mojo, uh, certainly um, the ability to kind of continue with those learning org tools, creating a feedback-rich culture are uh, the pieces that keep me here. And people like you. Moi, je serais curieux si Gilles ici euh, à savoir la notion en français de CFS Mojo. How would you mm. define it in French? Because uh, this is something that I think needs to uh, carry out to the broader audiences. And uh, if this uh, podcast will be available in both official languages, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how it can be translated. Mm but certainly something in French that would equate to Mojo. I'd just like to get your views on that. Hmm. J'aurais tendance à, à dire peut-être euh, un esprit libéré. Mm-hmm. Oui. Moi, j'avais l'expression « un petit jeune c'est quoi ». C'est, c'est, c'est cette étincelle-là là, qui, euh, qu'on n'arrive pas nécessairement à bien décrire parce qu'elle est intangible, mais qui... George, des suggestions? Oui, euh, je dirais que c'est aussi une, une, euh, une sens d'aventure, que, que de, de, c'est une aventure sur laquelle on embarque ensemble, puis l'espace existe pour cette aventure, puis le, le système, les... Les personnes dans le système encouragent que tout le monde embarque sur ce, cette aventure ensemble. Euh, c'est vraiment un, un, un effort euh, unique. Euh, ce qu'on a vécu à, à, dans, les, dans les années que j'étais là, c'était, je dois dire que les expériences qu'on a eues en, en développant cet esprit, de cette culture, effectivement, c'était, c'était une aventure. C'était quelque chose de, de vraiment nouveau, de, d'excitant, de stimulant. 
Et, et le résultat était, comme Judy disait, que le monde s'amusait, mais on, on réalisait des choses aussi en même temps. Je pense que c'est aussi important dans les deux langues de parler de l'aspect de notre culture. C'est un aspect de notre culture, et ça rentre true et facilement. Je veux dire, ça semble presque le même quand vous le faites en anglais ou en français. Et je pense que c'est l'un des aspects du mojo. Nous disons ça de l'autre côté. Part of the mojo is being an aspect of the culture of CFS. I totally agree with that, and, and there's this thought that has been coming back into my mind a lot that speaks to that, and I think it's linked to the culture of foresters as well, and this that notion of humanity, you know, of, of, of being simple but not in a pejorative way, you know, simple people... Uh, Easy to, uh, c'est facile d'aborder ces gens-là, uh, c'est des gens qui se prennent pas au sérieux, c'est des gens qui, 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 qui travaillent avec une matière vivante that, that you can't control, right? So, so, so you can steer one way, but you can't really set the tree to go like the way that you want it to be in the time that you want it to be without being affected by anything outside. And, and so I think that translates or transpires like the culture of foresters in general into the culture of the organization because people have that that natural way of being yeah i would be careful how you say that because uh you then create an isolation as to part of cfs those that are foresters what yeah. you're talking about is people who work with forests yes people who work with yes absolutely it, then you get the whole crew yeah no no absolutely you're absolutely <laughs> and you're right, right. Yeah, i, I mean i think back right. to the yeah. to the scientists yeah. in the lab and and you know technicians and people yeah. in the admin support system and all they're all infused with that culture of the people who work with forests yeah, yeah i get it yeah and marianne um the idea about humanity and human connection and energy things that you can't necessarily um touch is sort of what I heard as you folks were trying to explain it in your own words, whether it be French and English, in terms of mojo. And I think um, taking it to basics around humanity and recognizing how we feel when we work with people, why we laugh, and the, the sort of connections that come about, relationships, that I think has a real heavy part to play in culture and in your definition of, of mojo and, and why you folks were where you were and, and were drawn to CFS um, because of how you felt and the energy that was coming from the folks that you worked with and the, and the connections that were being made, which I think in essence is a description of our humanity. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. we're on question one and, and maybe a little bit of what Judy was talking about in terms of um, why she has stayed at CFS. Um, the, the sort of formal question was, what did you want, or why did you want to work there? Uh, where are you folks at in terms of, do you want to go to that question, or is there a different, a different um, path you'd like to take next in terms of talking about uh, CFS and Mojo and learning organizations? Well, we can start with that. It'll, um, all of us are so shy that it'll obviously go into various uh, aspects of the conversation <laughs> as we go forward. All right, great. Okay, so the formal question was, why did you want to work for CFS? You want to start, George? You want me to go first? Uh, no, go ahead, Jeff. Well, for me, there's an aspect of my history that many of you probably don't know, and that is that I worked with CFS for most of my career before I became part of CFS. Um, it goes back to when I was a student. I was working here in the Ottawa area. Um, I was actually employed by the National Capital Commission, but I was working on the injection techniques for elm trees in the heydays of the Dutch elm disease. And there was this young scientist and his support scientist 
by the name of Ed Kondo, uh, who later became the DG of the Great Lakes Forestry Center and was the DG I replaced when I became the DG of the Great Lakes Forestry Center. So it was, a, it was quite, a, quite a closed loop. Uh, so I started out there. Uh, uh, I worked in the private sector for a period of time uh, when we operationalized uh, elm tree management and working with Dutch elm disease. But then I joined government again um, when I moved to Manitoba and took on the Dutch Elm Disease Control Program and Forest Protection writ large and uh, uh, reconnected with Ed because we needed an advisory team on the activities we were taking. Then I moved to Ontario in protection, stayed close to Ed, was collaborating with the then Great Lakes Forestry Center when I was in the provincial system, et cetera, et cetera. So I had been affiliated with CFS for most, in one way or another, for most of my career. And uh, uh, so what drew me to it was a couple of things. Uh, uh, one, it's national scope. Uh, I was, uh, um, at that point in my career, looking. Uh, I hated the discussions we used to have in the FPT world where all of my superiors in the provincial system thought the world ended at the border. Uh, Manitoba was black as far as the map was concerned, and so was Quebec. Everything west, everything east. It was just Ontario, or do the same in Manitoba. So that I found frustrating. As we all know, trees don't recognize borders, diseases, you know, fire, whatever. So that was frustrating. So I wanted to work in the national system. But I also had had enough association with the people in CFS, even back then, um, that I knew it had, I wouldn't have used the term mojo in those days, but it had a, a, a move the yardsticks forward, look for ways to get things done kind of approach. It wasn't as bureaucratic as some of the other organizations that I had been in, particularly on the science side, the regional nature of the labs. I didn't have the same exposure to the headquarters environment at that point in my life. Um, so that's what attracted to me, I mean, to it. The people, the national scope, the get things done kind of attitude. George? Well, mine was, uh, I think, a, a little bit different. I, I, I guess I would start by describing a meeting that I was invited to in Ottawa. And I won't mention any names, but but the the there were uh, it was industry people meeting with CFS, and someone in the room said CFS does what nobody else wants to do, and I thought, well, what a what a horrible way to sell an organization, because I don't I'm really not interested in doing what nobody else wants to do at all, and so I had very little interaction with the CFS in in my uh, earlier career both in industry and, and working for the provincial government. Um, but then, but then uh, I met Jeff through, through the uh, MNR stuff in Ontario, and there was some, some uh, very uh, interesting policy change work going on there that he was involved with and that I became closely involved with as well. Um, and, then, uh, you know, and then this idea came up that I was talking about earlier that, that uh, you know, the CFS was going to lead uh, um, the research agenda was leading the research agenda in, in forestry in Canada anyway, and was going to provoke, I guess, for lack of a better word, this this fusion of the existing research organizations and create or provide uh, a component of its research capacity towards a new partnership with the industry. And and nobody really knew what that looked like, or what it would look like, or what it could look like. And that, for me, was extremely attractive. And it was uh, it was. Uh, uh, another another person in MNR said, I, I always have admired how you can see opportunity in the face of confusion and chaos. And and this was certainly an opportunity to, to 
to get involved with something that was different and new and and really leading edge and that the national in scope i think that was part of it but but for me it was this really unique idea um how to lead the industry and government together in this new uh research endeavor and it was uh extremely appealing. And George, if I may, um, um, I would suggest, knowing you, um, that part of that built on the relationship that we had created between the feds, the province, and the industry, and the FRP. Yeah, that was that was kind of the precursor to it. So I, yeah. like you, I, I mean, I knew a number of people within the CFS, but I didn't really know the organization, uh, per se, and, and, and the people I worked with, and, you know, were, were all, I think, particularly the science community, extremely competent. Uh, very qualified, very willing, very open. So, so yeah, I did have I did have some some contacts there. But but what the organization stood for as a whole, you know, I really I I didn't need to know that. I wasn't really that interested in it. And and it wasn't until this this notion of of merging the institutes and creating a new one came along that I really started to pay attention to the you know the CFS corporate as a whole. Right. The FRP, for the benefit of the podcast, is um, the Forest Research Partnership which was established, I guess I was still provincial in those days, because it was you, me, and Ed Condo who went up to talk to uh, um, uh, Frank DeTore. That's right. We we had 15 minutes with Frank to sell him on this idea of the three organizations collaborating. And how many hours did we spend with him? Had to be at least two, two and a half. Uh, uh, He was just so fascinated. And he ended up tapping George on the shoulder and said, okay, you're going to run it. And uh, uh, that was sort of the beginnings. And, And it was. It was a microcosm. It was only Ontario primarily, uh, and even only parts of Ontario in a, in a forest-type uh, uh, kind of sense. Uh, but it was the precursor of that bigger thinking that became the change that he's talking about. Yep. Very nice. Judy? Ben, j'ai commencé mon travail comme Jeff avec la province de Colombie-Britannique. Uh, comme spécialiste en prévision de comportement de feu. Et j'ai travaillé beaucoup avec le monde... Uh, le service forestier de Canada, um, leurs spécialistes, um, surtout leurs spécialistes de feu. C'était surtout d'avoir une opportunité de, d'avoir un, un impact national um, au niveau de forestry. Et autrement, j'étais tout à fait prête pour une nouvelle uh, aventure. Um, but one of the things that attracted me most to work with CFS was the diversity of the workforce within the federal family. So um, at the time, Kami Ramchurn was uh, Director General for the Pacific Forestry Center. And I had worked as a woman uh, who had specialized in forest fire um, and worked for the first 25 years of my career with almost no interactions with women at all. we would have only had women who worked in the finance or HR sections of the provincial organization that I was with at the time, uh, or dispatchers or radio operators. But uh, I had not had the opportunity to actually work for a woman, have peers who were female, and staff who were female. And so that, for me, was just such a, a, a phenomenal opportunity and it's funny because people up until that point would ask me about who my mentors were, and I would list off this list of men. And they were all super wonderful. I was very, very fortunate in my career. But uh, the chance to work in a super diverse workforce was um, just so liberating for me. And Maria Neek, what about for you? Um, well, so there was a, 
something very practical of, of getting a job out of school. So that, that was a very big incentive uh, to, to, to join. Um, and, then, um, and then it was that function or that, that role that my DT at the time portrayed, which was uh, somebody who wanted to lead a change. And so there was that, that big notion of, oh, this is a place where we can actually take on a leadership function and try something and convene people together, bring them together, être un rassembleur, puis être uh, quelqu'un qui avait le goût du risque, puis d'essayer des choses. And, and those two things, uh, risk-taking and, and being a convener, really talked to my values and, uh, and made me want to stay. Very cool. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if we're okay to move on to a question that I'm quite curious about to hear in terms of your responses, and it's around um, something you've already, all of you've already done. Your experience as it relates to promoting and living and breathing uh, learning and high-performing organizations. I'd love to. We'd love to hear your thoughts and views on how you feel you've done that, whether it was emulating behavior or how you promoted. Uh, the concepts that connect to learning organizations and high-performing high-performing organizations. Judy, did you want to start off? Uh, so I think for me there there were some fundamental pieces in my story that really helped uh, liberate me. Um, one was I had the opportunity to take a course called the Leader's Discipline. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Ian Chisholm delivered that through uh, the Roy Group. And those were... Um, absolutely liberating for me as an individual, but the other piece that was really important to that was the tools were being introduced to uh, an entire organization, and so it's about shifting a culture. Uh, so the tools that we were introduced to at the leader's discipline were simple things like the feedback model, uh, what's going well, what's tricky, and what do you want to do differently. But creating the space to have a two-way conversation around those things uh, introduction to difficult conversations and some of the tools you can use there, uh, to coaching tools. Um, and the concept here was that you weren't going to need to hire expensive coaches for your leaders within your organization uh, or for the more juniors within your organization. If you taught everyone how to be a coach and to be coached, uh, to provide feedback in a constructive, respectful way and to help your, your, your staff and yourself open your mind to the feedback of others without you taking it too personally. Um, and so um, those were super critical tools. The others were, of course, a, a suite of tool sets. Uh, um, early on with the province uh, who had embraced learning organization tools and uh, Bob Chartier's work, uh, another woman by the name of um, Shelley Sullivan introduced a suite of tools. Jeff, might you, you might know Shelley or know of yep, Shelley. Yep. Yeah, through, through for a whole variety of, of tools. Um, but, but Bob's books and tools, I learned by being engaged in meetings, in open space, in cafe discussions. So I wasn't a formal um, sort of facilitator at that point in time, but the tools were easy to pick up. And so you could watch them executed and then execute. Um, and that was exactly what you really wanted your organization to start doing, is you wanted folks to start participating, osmotically having picked up how to use these things. And so, for me, fundamentals are things like the leader's discipline as a course, 
um, feedback models, uh, coaching, hopefully not the expensive route, um, as well as, you know, just go back and refresh yourself uh, around Bob's tools with Handcrafted Leadership, his new book. Um, and those are tools that are easy to hand out and hand on to other folks. That's great. Thank you, Judy. Um, George? Well, I uh, hired on in 2006 with the, with the CFS, and it was just at the time when uh, uh, the ADM of the day was, was uh, trying to lead the charge on this new arrangement with, uh, with the research community in forestry with the uh, industry research organizations. And so at the time, he had said that the CFS would dedicate about 10% of its research capacity to this new organization, whatever form it took, and, and then hired me to come in and set it up and run it. So it, I came in as a, as a relative unknown to the CFS from the industry side um, and, and basically from the outset faced a lot of concern as to what the real motives were behind me being there for one and what the motives were for uh, for this, uh, for the CFS taking on this this contribution to this new uh, research entity. So, I think you know. I think within two weeks of arriving at the CFS, I was on an airplane. I had staff in each of the centers across the country, and and I was on an airplane to go and meet people and say hello. And you know, I don't have horns, and and, and things will be fine. And at the very first meeting after doing my little thing, which was basically saying, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know what it's going to do. I um, need some help uh, just understanding how government works um, and so on. So it wasn't a very informative session on my part, but then I opened it up to questions. And the very first question wasn't a question. It was a statement. It was, we think that uh, we have all been assigned to this new entity because CFS intends to privatize uh, us um, and you. Uh, to this new research organization. And, and that fundamentally was untrue, but in the vacuum, of course, rumors start. And that was, there was this widespread fear within, there were 65 people that had been given a letter and assigned to, to this new organization that I was running, uh, that was to run. And and so it, that question, and, and it was in different forms repeated in every center, really spoke to me that, you know, if we were going to make this thing work, then people were going to, first of all, need to buy into the culture of the CFS, but a culture within a culture, which was this new organization that had, you know, a lot of outreach to the industry side. So, 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 so now what, you know, and, and then uh, Jeff had hired uh, Sylvie Lapointe, who was a, a protege of, of Bob Chartier's as well. She worked with the CFS for a couple of years, and I really took advantage of her skills as a facilitator and her knowledge in all these learning organization tools to to set up sessions in each of the centers and we brought people in and, and, and we did a lot of talking, a lot of flip charts, a lot of cafes that Jeff described earlier. And it was really just about developing this culture within a culture and creating a climate where people felt that, you know, this is an adventure, but it's one that's not high risk in the sense of employment or privatization or any of that. It's an adventure and something new that if it works could be really cool. And so so without that, I don't know what would have happened. I, I really can't picture how this new fiber center within CFS would have worked in the absence of that very strong effort to build that culture and the very strong effort and, and expertise that Sylvie and others brought to the table to, to, uh, to help us get going. 
Um, George, I just wanted to highlight, you know, in the example that you've shared, um, I jotted down the word trust, and you were real. And I think that those are, are really, um, without you using the words, your example actually shows your role um, as a human in a leadership role, being real with your folks and, and, and seeing them and, and feeling feeling sort of where they're at and then um, welcoming the idea of skepticism and questions and then building, as you said, um, culture, but also this idea that trust needs to exist. And, and you've given a really great example of how you folks went about creating that so that there was this shared sort of vision or shared sort of energy in terms of what the program and the team was going to be doing. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Can I, I, should, I should maybe interject, if I could, just a very quick story. We were in Edmonton, and there were I think we had flown everybody into Edmonton for one session there, and Sylvie kept prodding me to you know, open up to people and so on. And so, so I, I got into this discussion, a monologue at the front of the room about risk. And I said, you know, people think this is a risky endeavor that we're taking on. And, and I said, I don't feel that risk at all. If you want to know what I, what I feel as a risk, then I'll tell you about my 17-year-old daughter who's leaving <laughs> for Australia in two weeks by herself. And, and now that is a risk from a parent's perspective. And of course, everybody in the room could relate instantly to that yeah okay I can see why you would think that would be a risk and and that in turn kind of put the other risk around what this new organization was in the right perspective so it was it was a neat moment yeah very cool and it's a great way in terms of building um, relations and commonality right building understanding and again another example of you being very real and honest about where folks may be at and sharing you know a personal story it goes a long way in terms of building trust yeah yeah what I did wanted to add to this conversation is the fact that it takes energy to maintain um, this space for innovation and creative leadership. It's not something that we've always done really well. There's been an ebb and flow in those processes. We tend not to have done very well during significant times of change. Uh, and it's important to know when you have an opportunity to move forward with some of these tools in a legitimate um credible way, especially if you're inducing a lot of change in your organization. So George's story is a really important one. You have to build trust. It's not something that's given. Yeah. I'd like to pick up on that, Judy, because uh, um, my role in all of this was a little different. Uh, I had had the experiences that we described in the provincial and then the Great Lakes Forestry Centre case. Then I moved to Ottawa. Uh, uh, took on the role of DG of Science and uh, um, was seeing the need for fresh ideas, some new uh, uh, approaches, etc. And so I started the process, and, and George is right, one of the things I did, which I guess in hindsight was a risk, was I hired an individual into the Canadian Forest Service uh, by the name of Sylvie Lapointe that had no forestry background uh, at all and, and came with all of the uh, very positive aspects that we all know about uh, relating to Sylvie. And we started to do some of the training and started to use the, the tools and whatnot. But quite frankly, while everybody was excited by it and used it in their own work environment, it didn't really take off at a, a CFS organizational level until we realized, uh, as George has described, that we had a big initiative underway and the right way to get that big initiative moving, and I'm talking about George's experience with the Fiber Center, was to use these tools. So while he went across the country 
talking to people and having Sylvie help him uh, uh, set up these sessions and whatnot, we were doing two things. One, we were continuing to train more practitioners, but two, we were also telling the fiber center story to non-fiber center employees in the regions. So people were getting the exposure to the overall thinking and behavior of the community of practice, the learning organization community of practice, LOCOP as it was known, or probably still is, um, uh, around the Forest Service. And it, that just was like a quantum leap forward. Mm -hmm. So it was the, the power of bringing something we were doing that had policy implications, had organizational design and change implications, had change management flavor to it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And those uh, learning organization community of practice tools and techniques coming together. And that was where I think this um, mojo that we've been talking about from the beginning really blossomed in the organization. Yeah. Can I, um, can I uh, interject to um, talk a, a about a, a little bit of a trickier experience, something that went, sure. didn't go as, as smoothly? And George, I'm going to put you on, on, on the spot. Because I don't know if you remember that, but I, I, it's still a very vivid memory uh, for me. But we, uh, we were doing this initiative called DG Res 5s. And so this is, was something, again, out of the normal structure. Our ADM at the time wanted to um, have more interactions between our senior decision maker and our senior scientists. And so um, I, was, um, I was looking for uh, somebody to help me because I was way too junior. I came into George's office on the eighth floor, uh, one of the few times that he was not with his people in his, within his organization. And then I, I talked about this, this uh, scan, environmental scan that we had done on, on what should be the science priorities of the future and uh, how we should do science. And so we decided, not uh, knowingly where it was going to lead us, to, to go ahead and, and, and try to engage conversations around that. And um, we had done, I think, one or two workshops. I can't remember, George, uh, maybe you do. But we, we were planning an upcoming one, and, and we got into a, a little bit of... Um, of a push and, and pull and, and, and between the two of us because we were the two co-champion of the initiative but George was really the champion because he was the DG and so while he was playing this enabling function with me the organization didn't really know how to absorb this enabling function even though we have that kind of culture that is conducive to that in practice sometimes you know like we'll go back to what we know or what feels safe, which is more of the hierarchy. And, uh, and so I was pushing, I felt, and, and in our interactions, George, I think that we were acting as equal, quote unquote. We were on the same level trying to push this initiative forward. Um, and, and at one point, we, I was pushing something a little bit different and George had a different view on how to do things. And I remember it was Friday, it was about 4.30, which was way later than George usually stayed at the office because he started really, really early. And, um, and we kind of left a little bit like tense and not having reached an agreement and kind of like, okay, well, then me saying to George, okay, then you go your way and you do it. And because like you're the DG and you decide and I was like, rah, 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 rah. and it was a really painful weekend. Um, 
like really painful, not just because my, it was not because my views weren't chosen, although, you know, I, I do have a tendency to like that my ideas get taken up, but um, it, it was mostly because my relationship with George was at stake, like this, this, this real, this real way of working that was meaningful and that was outside of the structure what was at stake and I was letting it being destroyed by my own little desire to be visible and, and, and influential. And I remember that the first thing that I did at the time, I was pregnant too, so my hormones was like were super high. I'll, I'll blame my hormones for, for, for some of my... Uh, <laughs> my bad behaviors at the time but I went into George's office and then we, 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 we chatted the first thing in the morning to kind of like okay share that it was difficult like we, we, we went to a personal level and said okay like this like what happened Friday like yes it has impact for the event itself or the workshop but it, there's something also that we need to talk about right between the two of us with our relationship and, and, and to me it was a a great um, the, the courage that that George um, showed in 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 staying in that space and not trying to say that no no it'll be fine and we're going to continue and and try to not talk about it was um, it, it taught me a lot and it, it taught me the the, the importance of, um, of of being patient and accepting the friction as part of of the process of becoming a learning organization and that. Actually, in those moments when there is the friction, it's probably because you're hitting something really real. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you need to take time to pause and, and to unpack that. But it, it was something that I still talk about it. And Georgia, my, like, my stomach is going all over. Because um, I, I remember how, how that weekend was, was a very, very tough weekend. So I don't know if you want to add anything or if it. Add uh, George, you're just something. so intimidating. Yeah. Well, I, I don't remember the the weekend specifically. I I do remember the that DG Res Five exercise as being another example of being way out in left field, taking a chance on something. Um, and I do remember I do remember a number of I would call them intense conversations with you as we as we put that together and as we followed through with it. But but I also remember. I think it was one of them. I don't remember the first or the second which one it was, but the 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 ADM of the day, Tom Rosser, was not able to attend on that particular day, and I think Jim Farrell wasn't either. And they both came in at the end of the day uh, for a half an hour or whatever. And Tom, he, without knowing anything that had been talked about during the course of the day, he said something happened here today that was really important, and I can feel it and I can see it. And I'm not sure what it is, but it's really important, and I think that we need to build on it. And and I, th I thought that was that was pretty a very cool comment for one thing. Kind of forgave him for not being there through it. And uh, um, but but it was you know we were dealing with with some extremely bright, motivated people in the, both on the science side and on the on the leadership side, and uh, and and we were forcing them. To, to show feelings, to develop relationships with each other, and, and we designed it that way. And so it was, I think, only normal that, that Maria, Nick, and I would, would, you know, butt heads over details and how we were going to do it. And, and Maria, Nick, is much more analytical than I am and much more scientific than I am. And I tend to just kind of fly by the seat of my pants and what feels right at the moment, and that drives her crazy. So, 
So, you know, I think the friction part of it is, I, I don't even call it friction. I, I call it, you know, listening and, and paying attention to what the other people are saying and then responding in a fashion that is, um, is, is honest. And, 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 and then we went from there. And, and we had more than one uh, session like that, Maria Nick, in, in, in further days. And, uh, you know, it always, it always, uh, we always figured it out. But, you know, Judy said earlier that, that, that you know, the, the timing of things, and, and it's, it's a very tiring and exhausting process. I, I, I will say that, that. And Sylvie, for example, who's so good at it, and she used to disappear after, if we had these sessions, she'd be gone at 5 o'clock when the day was over. And she said, you know, I, I, later I asked her about it once, and she said, well, I'm an introvert. And and I need some time to myself and some space to kind of recharge for the next day. And you'd never know it, so, you know, watching her perform. But but she she needed that space alone. And I'm like that too. And and so putting yourself out there and talking to people and really really trying to listen to what they're telling you is an extremely wearying exercise. And and I found that over time, uh, you know, that that it really uh, it was. It was hard to maintain it. It's hard to sustain that over a long period of time, both at a personal level and at an organizational level. Two things that come to mind listening to all that. One, obviously, is the phrase uh, creative tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that's what I hear the two of you describing in that particular example. And that very much is the reality of doing something different and being a, a disturber of the system and all the rest of it. And the other, with the Tom Rosser reference, is trust. We've, that conversation has been, you know, we're repeating a little bit here how important that is, uh, uh, but that was a really powerful expression of trust, saying that something really important happened here today when he wasn't there for any of it. He yeah. had trust in what we, what was happening, in what you two had organized, in the people that were involved in it, uh, uh, because if that was a, a busted flush day, that statement would have been very hollow. Yeah, yeah. But he had trust that it was real. And Georgia, I just wanted to add to that too, as as you folks were talking. One, I thought about that Judy's initial introduction to this question, um, where you, Judy, you talked about tools and 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 communication and and critical conversations, and the idea that it's skill, it's a learned skill to be able to to not hear but to listen, um, and to you know paraphrase and to be comfortable with the uncomfortable and and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone so that you're comfortable with diversity of thought in these heated, heated, wonderful, energetic conversations that may result in being exhausted at the end of the day, but recognizing the value that it brings to um, the depth of the work that's being done. Jeff, as you were summarizing, we talked about trust. My mind went to safety and the idea around psychological safety and, and, and there's references around having these critical conversations that maybe don't feel great, but that there needs to be this, this level of feeling safe to express yourself. And then Maria Nick, I love the example you provided because without saying that word, station, that dialogue and that experience could not have taken place if there wasn't a level of safety that was felt within the team. And I think it's a great example that you've shared in terms of what can happen when you are in a psychologically safe environment. Well, therein lies one of the roles of leaders in doing this, and that is to create that safe space and to be conscious about the creation of it. A lot of the times uh, uh, when we went through the, the sort of debrief, if you like, of all of that history, uh, people would you know, uh, uh, credit others with having created space for these things to happen, which is true. 
giving them time within the workday, uh, uh, supporting it from uh, uh, either fiscal, if it was renting out a room or somebody being sent on training, you know, whatever. But even more powerful is the creation of the safe space for people to be able to think differently, behave differently, come up with what may sound like a little bit wingnut ideas, but lo and behold, uh, once unwrapped, can really have an impact and really be useful in, in terms of uh, the journey that we were all on. So that safety reference is, is psychological safety, uh, job uh, job safety, the way uh, uh, George was describing his first introduction to some of the regional labs, creating that safe space, and I have to capitalize the S there, uh, um, is a really important part of this whole discussion that we really haven't gotten into in a, in a big way, but I think we've been dancing around it through all of this discussion. Merci à la question numéro 5 que Jody nous a illustrée. Et évidemment, ce serait bien de savoir de la part de votre expérience, comment le service canadien des forêts peut-il assurer la pérennité ou la permanence d'un environnement d'innovation uh, and the leadership, may at tous les niveaux. That's a really interesting one, and I would argue that it never did. It didn't maintain it. I think it's ebbed and flowed over the years, and that comes to the personality of the people who are leading, uh, uh, their um, uh, willingness to embrace some of this. Um, I mean, what CFS started became NRCAN Mojo for a period of time. And a lot of that was because we had a deputy minister who uh, very much embraced it uh, as she learned about it from us uh, within the CFS and, and uh, as we started to move it out into uh, other parts of this organization and indeed other organizations. Uh, but then I would argue when she left, uh, uh, it was maintained by the following deputy, but his engagement in it was less. The next deputy, now you're two removed, it started to wane. Given the role I play in still being connected with both CFS and NRCAN through some of the science policy boot camp work and whatnot, uh, I've seen it start to come back up. And it was a, a fascinating little anecdote that generated the, the raison d'etre for it to come back. Uh, and that was that the then head of the organization called Science Policy Integration made the mistake I would argue, maybe he did it on purpose, of saying in an executive meeting, uh, we're losing our mojo as a department around some of these tools and learning organization and, and maintaining the science policy integration within the organization. Whereupon the deputy of the day looked at that individual and said, and I think we have an EDM with the title science policy integration. And he was the one that white voiced it. So needless to say, that individual was then assigned the responsibility of doing something about it, which sounds very government, bureaucratic, and all the rest of it. But in truth, it started to reinvigorate the whole thinking, behavior. How do we draw on that expertise that we have and had? How do we use it? Uh, um, I made the point that the, the Fiber Center initiative was a very powerful it was a tool for the learning organization, and the learning organization was a powerful way of helping the, the uh, Fiber Center move forward. And I bring up the science policy integration agenda because it had the same effect. Being able to generate the science policy integration requirements of an organization like NRCAN uh, uh, needed the learning organization community of practice capability. And therefore, that big initiative helped bring the culture back. 
So it ebbs and flows. It was never maintained at a high level all along. You need that uh, uh, raison d'etre of the tool to, to keep it alive. So Judy, what you're doing, both in terms of internal to CFS, internal to NRCAN, and with the region in uh, reaching out to your provincial counterparts and other regional fits, um, is very powerful because things will be, people will have great ideas that will, wow, we can use that to do ABC. And it's the bringing of ABC with those skills and abilities together that really makes that uh, uh, capability, it helps maintain that capability. The leadership at all levels is also part of the culture. Uh, Bob Chartier is notorious for talking about the difference between management and leadership. And his fav one of his favorite expressions is, you can lead from anywhere from the file room to the boardroom, a bit of a throwback to an older style of organization where you had people who did nothing but work in the file room. But the fact remains, it gives you that spread of hierarchy. And, and he's spot on. And, and that is part of the training. And so if you're using the tools to accomplish something important, the tools will tell you that you've got people at all levels who can lead. And they can, as you did under Jacques Callet's, uh creating the space. For you and uh, Marion and and uh, and Christy to do something, it's a bit of a melange of all of those aspects. Having something important to do, reaching to the tools and the training and the people who have that expertise to do it, and then taking advantage of the knowledge you have to exercise that capability that recognizes leadership is different and can come from anywhere. And and, and Judy uh, Jeff, to, to this point, as uh, as mentioned. Um, a sentence in the past few months that has stuck with me, but it's investing in the how to impact the what. Yeah, exactly. And so the how at the beginning and the end, right. yang, right? So if, if we forget about the how, then we'll have minimal relevance with the what. That's right. And the examples that George and I have been talking about are where they have intersected effectively. Yeah. And you can do that consciously. Uh, um, historically, I, I, I would argue, George, we got there by happenstance. Uh, um, by good luck rather than good management. Uh, uh, certainly that was the case for me when I did the, the cafe up in the Sioux. It was a, a roll of the dice. Well, let's try this. Uh, um, and the fact that we had Sylvie on board, and Sylvie happened to be talking to George over a coffee one day, and they said, well, let's try this in the production of the Fiber Center. And all of a sudden it became a, a, a path forward for the Fiber Center uh, integration across the system. Mm -hmm. So being conscious about those interactions uh, between what and how are really important. George, what do you think? C'est comment, puis moi j'ai un peu une différente opinion que Jeff, puis Marianne va se fâcher de moi aussi. Je ne suis pas certain qu'il y a une façon d'assurer la pérennité pour répondre à votre question. Il n'y a rien d'assuré dans le développement de relations entre des êtres humains. Et des fois, il faut prendre des, des risques, comme on a, on a quelques-uns qu'on a pris ensemble. Mais la génération d'un esprit, d'une culture, qu'est-ce qu'on peut faire de façon systématique pour assurer que ça va continuer sans, sans changer, même que le monde change beaucoup, mais comment est-ce qu'on peut s'assurer que la culture va, va vivre? Et, et je, je crois que Jeff a raison de dire que ça va, puis ça, 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 ça va mieux des fois, puis ça va moins mieux des fois, puis pour moi, ce n'est pas euh, le résultat d'un système ou d'une approche nécessairement systématique, mais c'est la confluence de certains, certaines personnes qui ont une philosophie, qui ont une, des personnalités 
qui, pour un moment dans le temps, arrivent ensemble et travaillent ensemble de façon pour créer quelque chose qui est nouveau, qui est innovateur, qui avance, qui move the yardsticks, mais qui, qui c'est très difficile de le protéger avec le temps quand le monde change. Donc, puis c'est pas c'est pas unique au SCF ou au gouvernement, ça, ça se trouve dans des autres, dans des compagnies où on voit on voit pour une période de temps que ça va très bien, que tout le monde embarque, tout le monde comprend la vision, tout le monde peut faire la même chose, tout le monde veut faire partie de, de, de l'entreprise pour des raisons qui ne sont jamais claires, c'est pas durable. Il y a quelque chose qui se passe, peut-être c'est le monde qui change ou l'état financier, je ne sais pas quoi, là, mais c'est très, très, très difficile de le maintenir avec le temps. Puis moi, moi je pense que c'est en fonction des personnalités autour de la table « at a moment in time ». Et c'est ça qui, pour moi, c'est très difficile à, 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 à le maintenir avec le temps. Marie-Annick, tu n'es pas d'accord avec moi. Hein? C'est sûr que je ne suis pas d'accord, mais... <rire> Euh, mais non, mais c'est pas vrai que je suis pas d'accord complètement. Euh, là où... Euh, Peut-être parce que je suis une optimiste un peu trop, euh, mais, mais je ne crois pas que ça, ça dépend uniquement des personnalités. Euh, je pense, pense qu'il y a vraiment des choses qu'on peut faire euh, pour, pour maintenir des espaces, euh, protéger des espaces qui vont permettre à ces personnes-là de se manifester, puis de, de s'épanouir, puis à ces initiatives-là de, de prendre bol. Euh, je pense que dans ce qu'on a décrit depuis le début, on parle d'une de, 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 organisation qui n'est euh, qui pas rigide, qui euh, est curieuse, et que quand il y a des personnes qui ont ces mêmes caractéristiques-là, ben là, on voit vraiment que l'impact est de beaucoup euh, est beaucoup plus gros. Mais, euh, mais, mais, mais je suis pas certaine qu'une organisation très rigide et hiérarchique et, euh, et orientée sur les processus là très très définis puis prescrits, euh, même si on a des gens qui sont très 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 ouverts, innovateurs, euh, qui aiment le risque. Je ne suis pas certain que le, 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 le terreau va être fertile pour que l'arbre la, 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 grandisse. Alors, je pense qu'il y, y a comme un peu des deux. Je ne sais pas. Je pense que tu es correct. Il y a un certain nombre de risques. Je ne pensais pas que c'était risqué à l'époque, mais quand je pense à l'époque, j'ai été tenu sur le carpet par l'ADM du jour, disant « Qu'est-ce que tu fais individuel qui n'a rien à voir avec les forêts ?» Et ce même individuel, Uh, thought we just won the big brass ring when things started to unfold the way they did. So in hindsight, it wasn't a risk, but at the time, maybe it was. You have to believe that you're going to make a difference and you're going to be successful and you're going to try something. And it's the willingness of the organization to tolerate those that are trying things that make it possible for these various activities to take place. Pour moi, il y a deux choses qui sont tout à fait importantes par rapport à Ce pas à moi personnellement de maintenir le mojo de SCF. C'était à moi personnellement de maintenir ma curiosité, euh, ma passion, euh, mon courage. Mais il faut avoir euh, un bon leader, toujours, qui est tout à fait d'accord avec... Euh, 
l'intention de libérer euh, une organisation et euh, sa culture. Mais ce n'est pas un fait accompli qu'ils vont euh, euh, se mettre ensemble. Alors, on est tout à fait contrôle de nous-mêmes, mais et il faut euh, faire partir d'une organisation qui, est, qui encourage euh, l'organisation euh, finalement. Et euh, ça, ça doit commencer avec nous-mêmes premièrement, mais euh, alors ce n'est pas un fait accompli que ça va continuer. C'est tout à fait, euh, Jeff euh, tantôt a décrit euh, les leaders, surtout même euh, les souministes, qui euh, euh, a un rôle très important par rapport à la continuation de la culture d'une organisation ou, en effet, qui peut briser la culture d'une organisation, oui, qui peut changer ça tout à fait complètement. Alors, euh, euh, il faut faire attention. Mais votre enthousiasme et votre euh, curiosité, c'est la raison pour laquelle vous êtes une bonne leader. Oui. Exactement. The one thing that I thought was very interesting that you said was around perhaps was happenstance, but after hearing you uh, talk about how you operated, and you didn't say the word intense, but I, I my mind has gone to this idea of well, what was your intention and in the roles that you were in, and I feel that there, there was there was intention in terms of having folks involved and hearing what people had to say and valuing what people have to say and so you you took steps to ensure that that was going to happen so I, i don't know if i would say that it was happenstance or luck i feel like there was that maybe it was just your leadership style or and in this case your management style that led to the creation of a culture of trust and people sharing and feeling that they belong i think it's a testament to the way you folks were versus it being maybe luck I just wanted to share that. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I didn't mean to imply that the whole thing was just a scattergun of, of individual yeah. thoughts and ideas that happened to gel. Uh, but rather, the uh, um, each step along the path, uh, um, I mean, I used the, in a microcosmic sense, I used one tool to generate some uh, interactions and relationships, uh, both inside and outside the lab I was responsible for. Uh, uh, moved to Ottawa, I was looking to do some of the same things with a, an organization that had become, it hadn't become moribund, but it, it started to become uh, uh, fairly flat in terms of uh, uh, interest and enthusiasm by those in it at the time. It was the division I was responsible for, and their integration with the rest of the headquarters, CFS, and indeed the other labs. And so I started to use the tools. The happenstance part was where it really blossomed when uh, uh, we brought George in and, and started to look at an organization-wide initiative. And I don't know when the light went on, George, where we decided to really use the Learning Organization Community of Practice Practitioners as our, our how to achieve the what, to go back to what you said, Maria, Nick, uh, of getting people on board and, and getting the Fiber Center uh, up and running. Uh, um, in, a, in a cultural way. That was not, we didn't sit down and sort of plan that out. And that was my point. It started to evolve through the other experiences that we were having. And, and uh, uh, as is often the case with innovation, uh, uh, somebody like George with a long, strong industrial background, somebody like me uh, uh, with a checkered background of private sector, provinces, feds, region headquarters, etc. And somebody like Civi, uh, uh, who was coming at this, and the CFS was just another organization she was willing and hopefully hoping to help, uh, um, we got sort of 
together and that this thing just started to evolve through experiences. Yeah. And then the light went on in almost in retrospect, like, yeah, we got to drive this. This is a great opportunity. Let's keep this going. And it helped set the fiber center up. It helped build the capacity within CFS. It helped do a lot of things. And uh, uh, that's what I meant by the happenstance. It wasn't as though we sat back in a room somewhere and figured this all out ahead of time and then said, okay, we hire Sylvie, we, we train people, uh, we hire George to run the fiber center. When the time is right, we have George start using the facilitators. None of that was, was planned out. That was my point. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate the clarity, and I, I, I hope it didn't come across as it being a, a negative. I just think it was a very interesting way to look at it. And as you, as you sort of unpackage it, to use a systems um, term, this idea of unintended consequences. Yeah. And, and in this case, the idea of it being, you know, oftentimes we hear consequence and we think of the negative, and in this case, the, the, the positive unintended consequences. You know, the idea that we're really good at operate, uh, operations and tools and, and technical knowledge that we use to get the job done. And, and what, you're, you, what you folks have described is that that same mentality applies when it comes to us being human and how we work. And there are tools that exist and there are lenses and a, per, a, a perspective that we bring to the table that is like a tool, that is an actual, here's what we can do to make this work. And, and then, as you say, um, Jeff, this idea that it sort of blossoms and almost can almost um, take a life of its own to some extent with this momentum, my mind, and when you said that, my mind went to Mojo. I just yeah. thought that. <laughs> I will say we were smart enough to see that it was working and to build on it. <laughs> totally, totally, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I'm wondering if you, if you folks are okay with it, if, if we want to maybe do a, a closing with um, some final thoughts that you'd love to share um, with folks um, along any topic that we've, uh, we've talked about. There's been some really rich ideas and thoughts shared. So what are your, what are your closing thoughts? Um, my only thoughts are that it, it takes both the individual, the self, um, and uh, the receptiveness of an organization, and the self starts with an open mind, an open heart, and an open will that triggers curiosity, compassion, and courage. Very profound, and I mean that quite genuinely. My closing thoughts would be that uh, uh, one of the power, powers, powers, one of the powers of all of this, and part of the motivators, was um, an acceptance of ideas that were coming very much from the bottom up at all levels, grassroots. Uh, uh, and CFS was the first, and then the department started to do it more aggressively in allowing people to use their interests, uh, uh, their interests in, in things that were tangentially related to the core work, but lo and behold became uh, uh, valuable core work, uh, uh, and allowing those things to blossom. It's, it's a bit of a, a, a weak analogy, but it's the many flowers blooming analogy that people often use. And one very specific example that I'd like to, I still tell this story when I'm talking about uh, teaching some of this stuff through the Institute on Governance, and that is uh, we had a bunch of people who were interested in videography. And so at that point, we weren't using a lot of videos and whatnot, and they started to do some video work. And I can't remember whether it was the ADM of CFS or the DM of the day said, well, wouldn't it be great if we had a, a video on, and I forget what the topic was, uh, X, whatever X was. And they just embraced that. And off they went. 
and they created a wonderful video on whatever X was. Like I said, I don't remember. And it just blossomed into a whole community of practice on people who were interested in developing videos, videography, editing, uh, uh, and it became core to much of the work that CFS and other sectors within the department were doing. But gee, by the way, they were also doing videos on uh, uh, the uh, um, the campaign, the, the charitable campaign. They were doing videos on uh, summer picnics. They were doing on all kinds of stuff. And, and it was the freedom that the organization gave that grassroots interest to blossom that added to the mojo and the culture of the organization. So the more we can do to encourage that kind of of acceptance, uh, the more likely we are to maintain and grow what we're now calling the CFS Mojo. Yeah. George, what about for you? Well, I, th I think we've talked a lot about the uh, the term creation of space and in 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 this conversation and others, and and I think that creation of space in the right context is extremely powerful. If it's the creation of space for people to go and do whatever they want, then that isn't helpful, but if it's the creation of space to contribute to a commonly shared vision of where we want to go and what we want to do, then it's really extraordinarily powerful. And you know, I used to tell people that I I'm I like to think about work, but I don't really like to do it. And so so if if I think about it and you do it, then it's a really it's a perfect combination, at least from where I sit. And and the fact is I think when you create that space and when people understand what what the direction of the organization is, they, everybody's motivated. The work happens by itself. It's not directed. It's not hierarchical. It's not. I mean, you know, it it just everybody pulls in the same direction, and it is a, an extraordinarily good feeling when that happens. And and as we talked about earlier, it's hard to sustain it. But but when you have it, um, it is really really fun to be part of. And and I think. The, the the CFS parts and yes it ebbs and flows and but by and large I mean the opportunities that I had over the ten years that I worked there um, it was just a, a fantastic experience for me and I think for many others at the same time because that creation of space was was available to us. Uh, Maria, your final thought. I would say I would say practice, practice, practice. Don't try and be perfect. Pause pause and reflect. So practice, pause, reflect, learn, be curious, as Judy said. said. How many times did you hear that from Brian Emmett? Plan, do, learn, adjust. Yeah, well, Brian was a good example of creating space and removing Absolutely. obstacles to yeah. let everything And it's exactly out. what you're saying. That was the mantra. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so grateful, first of all, for just having the opportunity to have Everybody in the same conversation, a lot of fun uh, to see you, Jeff, and to hear you, George, uh, and uh, to have Jody and Gilles. Merci beaucoup, Gilles, uh, d'avoir la uh, confiance de se joindre à nous. C'est un honneur, un privilège. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and I'm willing to do it again anytime. Merci. Merci, merci beaucoup.